You all have heard me geek out on the podcast about reinforcement systems. A reinforcement system is the interlocking chain of behaviors that occur during reinforcement delivery. And even if you have a valuable reinforcer, you may sometimes have slow learning or unwanted behaviors if you don't have a well-designed reinforcement system. Lucky for you, Behavior Explorer is hosting a summit about reinforcement systems this spring of 2023. The speakers are Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, and Crystal Fernandez. And at the summit, you're going to gather so many practical ideas for how to accelerate your dog's learning. So I hope that you will go check it out, behaviorexplorer.com. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Hey, everybody. I have a treat for you. I have return guest, my friend and colleague, Lisa Mullinax. Lisa, will you share your pronouns with everybody? My pronouns are she, her. Welcome back again. I'm so excited to have you because there's been this recent upsurge in what I hate to call the trainer wars, but I guess it's what everybody's <laughs> calling it. The yeah. dates are kind, they're kind of centering on balanced versus force-free as the two sides. And you know that I put all of that in quotations. Yes. So you and I are going to tear this up today. And oh, I yes, like we are. You to start with a little bit about your background, and then I'll give a little bit of mine, and then we'll get into it. I started, my my first exposure to training was actually almost 25 years ago now, um, when I sought help for my own dog, and the first trainer I worked with um, sold me an e-collar for his aggression towards people and gave me one lesson on how to use it and sent me out in the world. So that was my exposure to training. And um, so I, I had already used those tools. I had also used a prong collar with him. And then as, um, as things can happen when used incorrectly, he later developed um, significant aggression towards strangers and ended up putting someone in the hospital. Um, so I sought the help of another trainer. And that was a wonderful trainer who took me under her wing, taught me a lot about positive training. Um, but at the time, positive training back then is what a lot of trainers might call balance now. Sure. Um, yeah. Because it was a lot of treats. It was primarily lure and reward training um, accompanied by verbal corrections, lots of body pressure, um, ooh, hard staring. We, we oh used gosh, that one a staring. lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so still still pretty heavy on corrections, but trying to get the behavior and reward the behavior more frequently. Um, and so shifting yeah. from improperly improper tool usage was kind of was your mm -hmm. foray into dog training. And then yes. you learned a lot of positive reinforcement techniques, but as well as um, some corrective or compulsive techniques that were paired together. Yes. And that was a huge yes. improvement on the improper tool usage. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So from there, you did, 
you kept learning. And basically my understanding yes. of your background is that as you kept learning, the corrections became fewer and fewer. Or was there like a revival that happened? Like, did you, I hate this word too, but did you cross over? So at one point I crossed over, but it was, it was not, it was not one action. It was a gradual process. Fortunately, that uh, wonderful trainer who took me under her wing, um, unlike a lot of trainers at the time, she very much believed in learning from other people and learning from other trainers. And so anytime we heard about a seminar or a conference going on, we all went. I was very lucky to be in Northern California where we had a lot of the, a lot of the greats um, at the time. And so I learned from some of the best reinforcement trainers out there. And at each new conference or seminar, we'd learn something new. And then we'd go and we'd try that with a case. And I say we, because we were, we were a group of trainers. We'd try that with a case and say, well, maybe on this dog, this is what we need to try. And it would work. And we'd say, okay, great. So that's a good approach for this type of dog. And then there'd be another dog. It's like, oh, well, maybe I'll try it on this one. And until pretty soon, that approach was just my, my standard approach. And, and so that changed my method there. And then I would learn another thing new and another thing new. So I really learned a lot of it in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was my very first Clicker Expo where I got a bigger overview about how to break down behaviors, how to, um, how to shape behaviors, and, and just learning about the nuanced use of reinforcement. And I'd say that was my biggest shift. Okay. And my background, uh, there are a lot of similarities. I learned some seriously compulsive training I didn't, like, I, as a pet owner, did not go buy tools and use them because I was a child, so I couldn't, like, drive to PetSmart and buy something. But I was kind of a kid trying to train my own dogs and following books, and, I mean, we're talking books by Keeler. We're talking, I mean, like, there are, there are a lot of books, right? And I just went to the library, and so there was everything from here to there. And then I did get, you know, my parents, I guess, kind of accepted that this dog training thing wasn't going to go away. And so I got a border collie and I was going to do sports with him. And he was pretty severely aggressive to other dogs. And like starting at age 10 weeks, just here's a gift for you, Sarah. Yeah. And I did learn a lot of heavy handed corrections for him. The trainers that I was learning from, I would label balanced for sure. They used a lot of positive reinforcement. They taught me a lot of really smart positive reinforcement techniques. They also taught me smart correction techniques. I was very successful in the use of that kind of combination with him. And then I went on to use kind of a combination with other people's dogs. And it was gradual for me too. But it kind of started, I read The Culture Clash by Gene Donaldson and was like, oh, I am a bad person. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Not that that was necessarily her intention, but it it comes across um, pretty sharply if you are a person who's engaged in um, corrective training techniques, and I was. So I did at one point, and I wonder if you did too. Like, I at one point really did 
engage in these arguments that we are going to unpack today from a very dogmatic standpoint when I was like, oh, when I had attended the revival and was no longer using corrections on dogs. I was obnoxious. I was obnoxiously dog- dogmatic for a long time. Were you also? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I learned a little bit about positive reinforcement and I was on the internet and I was telling everybody. Yep. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, What's funny I was, is I was nasty to some people I had learned from because oh they don't know anything anymore yeah. and I was such a hot right shot. it's gross I look back on it and I see myself showing up in these conversations I see people and I go oh I was just like you 15 years ago right <laughs> so much and I so go much. oh god when you I learned something recently when you look back on something you did and you cringe like Rather than have that be a negative experience, let that be a positive experience because that means that you grew. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also think it's important because it helps give me better perspective with my clients. Mm-hmm. Right? I can I can relate to them. I understand why they thought that that approach was going to be right for them. And I can speak to them about that from a place of empathy mm. instead of judgment. Totally. I was such an ass to some of my clients (laughs) who were using, you know, I, I remember this one woman who was in my class with a Siberian Husky in a prong collar. And I was teaching at this school where we had all decided together that they just wouldn't be allowed. Like you just couldn't come in with a prong collar on. And I, she was (laughs) She literally said the words to me, but what if I really love my prong collar? <laughs> and I, I had some judgment for her for that statement. Mm-hmm. Today, if a person walks into one of my seminars using any tool, I don't care what it is, I don't make them check it at the door. I, why would I take something from you that is right. helping you to feel safe handling this animal? Right? Right. And... I just, I, again, that's a moment that I look back on and I cringe. Right. Because I grew. So we see our past selves showing up in these really, honestly, vicious discussions online that are happening. Yes. We also now, both of us reject both labels, balanced and force-free. Completely. Yeah. I don't use either of those labels to describe myself. In fact, I don't use labels to describe myself as a trainer because I don't think the right one exists. So we both hold the same certification from the IWABC. Certified Dog Behavior right. Consultant. You've had yours a long time. I've had mine five seconds, but we both hold the same one. <laughs> <laughs> it's samesies. It's samesies. Here we are. And so I just say I'm a dog behavior consultant. I don't say I'm a force right. free trainer. I don't say I'm a purely positive trainer. I don't say I'm a, and honestly, I don't know any positive reinforcement based trainers personally that are my close colleagues who do use force free or purely positive. I do know. No. I have several colleagues who are in my cabinet who do claim the label balanced and truly like y'all got the better label. Like the word balanced is nice. (laughs) (laughs) Way better marketing. First of all, you nailed that because that's so much more appealing, more in that camp. Cause I don't really think I am. I think if you like parsed it all out, I would fall further on the force free side of things. But right. I don't like that. And I the word balanced is a really nice word. So I totally get it. But neither of us claim either label. No. Yeah. So 
we, this is the disclaimer time. You and I are here to kind of look at the facts as we see them rather than like share our personal opinions about stuff. Although our opinions are here and threaded through, of course, because they have to be. And of course we have strong opinions on everything we're going to (laughs) say because have you met either of us? But (laughs) what we really want to do is kind of parse all this out and kind of look at it from a zoomed out perspective and really recognize that, you know, you and I, we're not trying to do this from a place of authority at all. We're just no. trying to talk about kind of what's going on. Right. We're, we're looking at the pieces of these debates that aren't being discussed or even acknowledged. Yeah. And so no progress is being made in one direction or the other. And these are pieces that before we can have any sort of productive discussion um, and productive meaning either we gain a greater understanding of of other trainers or if there's a trainer who's looking at learning a different method, either one. This is information they need to know yeah. I think, before they make, can make an informed decision. You and I'd like to fill in some gaps that we see. Mm -hmm. We're not the authorities of those gaps. And there are going to be things that we forget or miss or aren't aware of. And we'd like to acknowledge that up top. Right. But essentially, here's what we want to say. This force-free versus balanced thing, this is a false dichotomy. Yes. The dog training industry is not comprised of two camps. It is one industry. That's right. That's why we call it the dog training industry. That's why it, although dog training... It doesn't show up on any government records. We always fall under the other category, but we are, we are, we are one industry and we are one of the few industries that has zero standards, zero licensing requirements. And because of that, there are a lot of variables from trainer to trainer. So many. And we won't have time today to get into our thoughts on licensing and leg- and legislation, but that is something <laughs> that does come up in these arguments for sure. Yes. So what's important is that our clients, the consumers of dog training, don't see two industries. They see one. Right. There's one industry. Mm-hmm. And everybody's lumped in there who is changing or improving dog behavior. So everyone right. who, you know, from the person teaching puppy kindergarten at the big box store to the veterinary behaviorist, we're all kind of like in this category for better or worse, if we're altering dog behavior. And I put the veterinary behaviorist in there on purpose because I think that they, uh, I think that their role in this conversation is interesting and sometimes gets uh, glossed over except for sometimes that field does come in and make statements about things. Sure. As kind sure. of the authority over us on occasion. Right. And right. so we got to recognize them as us because right. what they do affects us. And we work with them all the time. Right. Right. They, you know, and often... they are giving, so sorry, um, they are giving training and behavior modification advice and instructions. Yeah. Even so, not your veterinary behaviorist, but your veterinarian, if your veterinarian is giving training behavior advice, they're in this industry and they do. Yes. So none of this, you know, sometimes balanced versus force-free. And honestly, we don't 
want to keep continuing to use those labels in this conversation, but we're not sure what else to say. So understand that that's just kind of a fill, fill in the placeholder here because we don't know what else to say. The folks over here and the folks over there have tried to differentiate for the consumers. And the problem is that neither are, are clearly defined because neither, because again, it's a false dichotomy. It doesn't exist. Right. If I stand up, you know, if a website says force-free dog training, that tells me nothing. Nothing. It doesn't tell us anything about their level of knowledge, their skill set, or how much experience they have. And those things matter. Whether it's force-free or balanced, those things Either matter. Way. Either way, those things matter. If one of those terms is on your marketing material, it doesn't tell me what you know, it doesn't tell me what you actually do, it doesn't tell me what tools you use, you can find a lot of websites that tell me what you don't do. That's primarily yeah. going to be your force-free side of things, is a lot of yes. here's what I won't do and here's what I don't do. And right. that's where, I, that's really where a lot of these problems are, is that I'd like us to stop talking about what we don't do. Can we talk about what we do instead? I mean, it's, it's this personal soapbox for me, which is why... Same. I'm trying to showcase more trainers on my podcast who are just going to be allowed to say what they do to just show their work because this false dichotomy has hidden the actual work. It has. And, you know, as you were saying, when we were really dogmatic, it feels good to tell people what not to do, right? It is so easy to tell someone what they're doing wrong or what to avoid but like you had that student in class with the with the prong collar, they liked it because it was something they could do. And wow. telling them they couldn't use it wasn't telling them what they could do instead. And I was the same way. And I, I used to do that as well. And I hit a point and I don't remember what really shifted my view. But at one point, I stopped saying anything. As long as the person wasn't being heavy-handed, they weren't using it to control the dog, it was just that's what the dog was wearing, I would purposely, you know, when it was time to demonstrate an exercise, I would purposely borrow that dog. Mm. I would switch the leash from the, col from the prong to the flat collar. I would demonstrate the exercise. The dog would do beautifully. I would take them back and say, wow, he's really smart. He gets this. Mm -hmm. Next week, they came back without the prong collar. Perfect example of showing what to yeah. do instead of yes. dictating what not to do, right? Right. So if you're listening and you're kind of not believing us, like if you're listening and you're like, yes, there are two camps. Who are you people, <laughs> right? Like if you're... Right. That's what we're going to dig into now. I would like to... <laughs> I'd like us to talk about why we say there's not two, why we say this is a false dichotomy. So we've got some kind of questions that you and I are not going to answer because I don't think they have answers because that's kind of the whole point. Right. The first one being if a trainer used aversive methods, you know, and fill in the blank, whatever that means <clears throat> at the beginning of their career, like you and I did, how long are yeah. they considered balanced if they were considered balanced at all? Right. Which I will just point out that, by the way, when I was learning, you know, at the beginning of my career, we were considered the most positive training group in the area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, that was, also 
the comparative nature of things will change right. what these labels mean, right? Yes. And so then how long, you know, what's the what's the magical date at which you get your force-free badge after you've used an aversive tool on a dog? Right, right. I think the last time if... I hung on a dog was in the 14-ish years ago range, maybe 12. Do I, does it have it's to interesting. be 15 yeah. for me to get my badge? Right. And it's interesting because the last time, and I remember this very clearly, the last time I used of something aversive, an aversive strategy. Mm. It was about the same time. So I think there was also a lot changing in dog training at that time that you and I were both exposed to. But yes, within the, within the time, so I've been training as an adult for 23 years. I think you've been training dogs longer than I have because you started so young. Right, but professionally about 17 years. Okay. Oh, I've been in this business for 23 years and... For 10 of those years, I was using some kind of aversive in some cases with some dogs. So By really, levels, they'd call, that would be balanced because you right. use heavy positive reinforcement usage, but also right. some aversive strategies. So let's say I went to then a conference and I came back with my mind blown. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I've learned a whole bunch of new things. I've never tried them before. But I've learned a bunch of new things, and this is the way I want to go. Am I force-free then? Is it about the change in your mindset? Right. Or is it about the change in your actual practice? Right. And, you know, I also think that it's really important to consider here when we're, when we're thinking about, you know, you and I are saying that this dichotomy doesn't exist. The rest of the industry is saying it does, and it's really strong, right? right? And right. so... I'm going to say I would challenge somebody who believes this dichotomy exists to look at my body of work and tell me where they would put me. And here's the problem, Lisa. I think about half of the people looking at my work would put me on one side and about the other half would put me on the other. Yeah. Yes. Therefore, does this dichotomy exist? If right. It can't be truly defined. Can it exist? You know, and part of that is, too, and we do have those clients like we talked about. They have certain tools that are making them feel comfortable right, that they feel for their safety is needed at that point in time. And they have hired us because they don't feel it's the right tool for the dog, but they don't know what else to do. So we have this period of time in the meantime that the owner feels the need to use it for safety, but we're doing the training to move them away from that. If someone was driving down the road and saw me working with a client and the dog was wearing a prong collar, mm -hmm. et cetera. And they recognized me are, would they then believe that I have started using aversive tools? Sure. And, and they might, yeah. and especially if they're an extremely dogmatic on one side of this fence kind of fighter right. in this war, they might really, I mean, they might even take a picture and put it on the internet. I don't know. Or these days, right. These days they would. I, I have a client right now who uses a prong collar. She's been using it since before we started working together. Right. We discussed it. I understand why she's using it. She's She may keep using it when we're done. I The goal for me is not to get the dog off of it. The goal for me is to adjust the dog's behaviors that were brought to me to change. 
none of which has anything to do with why she chooses to use a prong collar to walk the dog. And when I want to use videos of this dog in educational material, which I do because it's a great case and the videos are great, I have to worry about what's going to happen when I share this beautiful training video where nobody's being harmed and everything is going really well and it's demonstrative of what I'd like the industry to look like because of the one thing around the dog's neck. And that's that's the problem here, is that then I, right. I don't share this video because I'm afraid of being hunted down with pitchforks, right? Right, and also, right. If I allow this to happen in front of me, a lot of people are going to put me on one side of the wall, right? Right. Because back when you and I were both very dogmatic about things, we jumped on stuff instantly, not just the tools. How many times did you inject in your, your client giving you the dog's history? How many times did you interject with, actually, <laughs> actually, dogs are not pack animals. Actually, that's not dominance. Actually, <laughs> right? And, uh, so and annoying. Like, so <laughs> and, that's, and that's what we learned in the beginning because well, we were really excited and so, about we so we needed to share and, it with everyone who didn't need to hear it. Right. And because that was our belief. And we know there's a lot of trainers out there that are still at that stage in their learning process. That's what they would expect us to do with a client who shows up for their lesson with a tool that does not fall under force free. Right. Right. Yeah. And so what we're getting to here is... I'm going to interject an opinion of mine. Oh, gosh, um, which I feel like I've already done a bunch of, but because I can't stop myself. Same. That the dichotomy isn't balanced and force free, but if there is a dichotomy, it is people training with very high levels of skill and people who are not. People who are doing a very good job and they are helping their clients and they are helping dogs get better and people who are not. Right. And so that brings up kind of two questions that I don't think have answers, which is, you know, does force free mean that this person is the most experienced or highly skilled? Does balanced mean that? Does balanced mean that this is the person who you want to take the really serious aggression problem to? Or does force free mean that? Right. And does does balanced mean that that trainer doesn't have the same knowledge of positive reinforcement right. strategies that a force free trainer does? Right. And you know, I think we can inject an opinion it's, it's not a fact, but given that you and I, over the course of our career, have known a number of trainers who either at the time were considered balanced or would consider themselves balanced now, we know enough of them to say we cannot slap the label balanced on someone or on this group of people and say that none of them understand how to use reinforcement the way we do. Yeah, we can't. Right. We can't say that. And I would say we can't say because a person claims force free that they do have a rich understanding of positive reinforcement because the evidence would tell me that one of the biggest problems in our industry is that nobody understands. Right. Nobody's a strong word. What I mean is a lot of people don't understand how nuanced positive reinforcement applications can be and how interesting and how just how much you can actually change, like how far it goes beyond giving the dog a right. hot dog when they do the thing you like. Right. And 
I would say that, you know, whoever's listening to this, I'm sure there are people who consider themselves balanced, people who consider themselves force-free. And I would say that we all have either worked with clients or, you know, experienced cases where a trainer did not help the dog. Mm. Either because, you know, and, and there's the really horrific um, abusive cases, which... You know, I, I think we all can agree, you know, some of the, some of the things out there, (laughs) right. Those are, are one very, very far end of that spectrum. And then there are those who consider themselves force free, who have really great theoretical knowledge Mm. and give a client a plan that either isn't practical or isn't helpful. Um, I just spoke to someone the other day. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're right. These extreme ends of the spectrum. Yes. Are where this dichotomy myth is born is when you've got somebody over here helicoptering a dog until they pass out. Yes. And you've got somebody over here really miss, just misapplying positive reinforcement techniques to no, to no avail. So the dog doesn't get better. So you've got that on this end and you've got the other thing on this end. Right. And that's where this false dichotomy, I think, is born. But you were saying. Right. Well, I think that, you know, one, if you call it the balance group, is assuming, you know, that this is the, the exact problem with the false dichotomy. When, when these arguments are happening, I'm seeing a lot of force-free trainers, all this. Balance trainers, all that. Right. Right. And because of this spectrum and because every single trainer in this unregulated, unlicensed industry is at a different point in their career, in their knowledge, in their skill, in their experience, we can't slap that label on and and use that to identify anyone. Yeah. And when when we make accusations, so if I say I don't say this, but I did when I was a super dogmatic (laughs) person but if i say well balance trainers are all hurting and scaring dogs and they're all gonna have worse problems because of the tool that you're choosing to use like if i say that that does not line up with the experience of a good chunk of the industry as well as a good chunk of your clientele and that weakens the argument severely hugely same deal and it on the other the other way around works too absolutely all all positive trainers would rather euthanize than correct, <laughs> right? That's a big right. one that comes out. It is a big one, right? You'd rather and, and that's rather when I be dead than experience a correction, and that again does right. not line up with the experiences of a huge amount of the industry or the clientele. The arguments are weak, right? I mean, because I am this person, this is my sense of humor, I say, yes, that's, that's what we all learned at the kill all the dogs conference this year. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's why we go and spend all of this money and travel and sit, you know, in these big conferences, because we just, we want to throw a few cookies. And if that doesn't work, that's it. And are there force free trainers out there who tell people you need to euthanize your dog? Yes. Are there balanced trainers who have done the same thing? Yes. yes. Are there the, you know, the the beyond far end of the spectrum who would tell someone to do that on the phone? Yes. And there's your problem, right? Yes. And 
it's just, again, these are weak arguments. We've got a lot of assumptions being made yes. by a lot of people on both sides. And that really fuels the fire. It fuels the, the misunderstanding of what professionals are actually doing. I had a recent experience with um, somebody on social media said that it is impossible to uh, fix, I think the word was fix, but whatever, predatory aggression, especially in a dog who has successfully killed with positive reinforcement alone. And I chimed in. And this is an area that I will say um, a lot of positive reinforcement trainers might fail. That's true. Because I mean, try competing with actually killing something when you're a dog that wants to kill something, right? Like, good luck. But the truth is that Felix, my own personal dog, has killed numerous chickens. And he is safe around chickens and other small animals in my presence. And that was done with positive reinforcement alone. Right. And so I just chimed in and mentioned it. And here's the problem. This is a person who she and I have mutual respect. And she said, well, I believe you, but I wouldn't believe many that made that claim. And here's that. There you go. There's another. That's it right there. Because I would not assume that I could be successful at that um, with the knowledge and skill level I have now, even after 23 years, because there's a there's a lack of experience there. And so I would is you could call your friend Sarah did it i would call my friend sarah together and you could get it done. that's right that's right which and economy hurts is those yes. relationships yes it absolutely does because if we're alienating others who may be more skilled than us yeah um, whether they're using right? whatever methodology they got more skilled than you in this particular area they're yes. valuable to you yes yes Clean and simple and I will say, so way it going in the way back machine, I had my border collie who was a huge, huge critter chaser. And at the time I was teaching in a public park. And so there were squirrels, there were ducks, there were all kinds of critters that would come through. And I did a, I'll just say it because this was in the early stages of my career. I did a crap job of managing it. And yes. so, <laughs> so he had, moments. So right? He had so many, so many times he broke away from me and got to chase something. And, you know, I hit my breaking point at a very, very embarrassing moment in the middle of teaching a class that I won't go into, but I will tell you half the class did not come back the next week and <laughs> I don't blame them. Um <laughs> Uh, And I I hit my limit and I was having lunch with a trainer who at the time was probably the most experienced, I would say, using balanced or aversive methods, but was a highly skilled, is a highly skilled positive reinforcement trainer. Mm. And I sat down with her and I'm like, "I, I really think that I need to go with a remote collar for this. I am not seeing any other way I can get around this. And you had just, and that was fresh off a big incident too. So yes, big feelings. Yes. Yeah. Big feelings. She didn't say, actually, she didn't say, you know, that could be really harmful. She said, okay, let's unpack this. And she uh, went through so and took a behavior history 
right? What did I do? You know, what was I using to manage? How did I try these things? What other management options were available? Once we had that down, then we talked about some positive reinforcement strategies that I hadn't considered. And in that conversation, she didn't make me feel like a jerk for bringing up that tool. And she made me a better reinforcement trainer because she taught me another way to look at this problem. And she is a person who could and would potentially use that tool. Yes? Yes. Yeah. I mean, she came from, she originally came from a protection background, right? And I love that you had this relationship, that there was no dichotomy at this table. There was no dichotomy at this table. Right. You were able to grow as a positive reinforcement based trainer because her positive reinforcement skills about that particular thing you were talking about were better than yours. Yes. Yeah. So where I think that's a perfect segue, I think, into what I think is really important for us to talk about, which is if Sarah's opinion that the real dichotomy is effective people and non-effective people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What do the the effective trainers have in common? Number one, and I think I, I will die on this hill. Everybody who's doing a good job leans on welfare as a core tenant of what they are doing. They first examine the dog's welfare and the dog's overall wellness. And then they lean on a strong foundation of positive reinforcement-based core skills. I believe that everybody that's effective has that in common. Yes, I, I completely agree. So then we got knowledge of dog behavior, just plain and simple. Right. Do, you know, we all need to know what body language looks like, what stress signs look like. And we need to, we need that understanding of, of learning in dogs. Yeah. And dog behavior, learning science for sure. But bouncing back, like dog behavior, I'll never forget Dr. Susan Friedman saying, you know, when she is called in, one of the things that she might do is consult on an issue that a zoo is having is having with an animal and right first thing she always does so let's say let's say it's a porcupine issue the first thing she says is who's the porcupine expert the first person i talk to is the person who knows this species the best yes that's your job is to know this species the best if you're the dog expert your job is to know this species the best and i here's another hill i'll die on that means understanding the breeds that you're working with not just the species i agree that's probably, I'm probably opening myself up for attack, but I, well, you're not, I'm not saying you need to understand all of them. I am saying it is wise for you to listen to the people who do know this breed. So like if you go into a situation and the person's got a Malamute and they've had, you know, Malamutes forever and they say, well, that won't work on a Malamute because rather than actually ing them, (laughs) <laughs> why don't you dig a little deeper and ask them more right. questions? Find out why they're saying that. Ask them more. Because what you might find out is that their history of training with these dogs brings them to saying what they just said to you. Yes. And yes. it's coming from somewhere. It's not coming from space. So understanding right. dogs as well as the breeds that you're working with. And if it's the it's let if it's the first time you're working with a breed do take a little second and educate yourself just a little bit about them. You of course are going to examine the individual above all else. Of course you are. Right. But understanding that this dog's breed is part of who he is as an individual. Yes. It's smart. So I would say knowledge of dog behavior. And that means dogs as a species, as well as the breeds that exist within the species. I agree. And 
<laughs> you know, when I got my first Border Collie, I didn't know they stared at you what? as much as they You're do. Like, Whoa, why is this dog staring at me all day long? Right. Right. And why is okay? why is he, is he so normal? like so sensitive? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it it goes beyond that. I mean, look at my my previous dog was a border collie. My current dog is a cattle dog. Both herding dogs, very but selected for very different behaviors. They're, nice and gay. They're so different. And and understanding that difference that you know that that doesn't that doesn't mean it changes how they learn. It changes what mm. what motivates them, right? What they're motivated by, what their possibly their preferred reinforcers. Mm-hmm. Maybe their preferred enrichment routes as well. Right. Yeah. How many times have you had someone come to you because their border collie was being really aggressive with? Golden Retrievers and Lab, Labrador Retrievers at the dog park. Right. And, you know, they're fine with a lot of other dogs, but knowing that Retrievers have, can have that very physical, very physical, invasive play style. And Border Collies do not like that. Border Collies are like, why are you touching me? Right. I mean, that's just one instance of understanding different breeds that we need to know so we can we can tell our clients that their dog is breedist no. <laughs> well, but no helps. but we it can use to inform them with our clients yes. they love to hear that we understand the breed oh yeah you know, they love it so i think understanding dog behavior and breed behavior is is yes. a is a part of being an effective trainer i yes. do think even though the jargon gets us in trouble that a knowledge of learning science is also important. Yes. As long as we are also taught and understand that the quadrants are the starting point of what we need to learn. Just they, learning. Yeah. And just yeah. learning them is not enough. And really, when I say learning science, like, sure, the quadrants, that's the jargon I'm talking about that gets us into trouble. Yeah. But then also understanding processes like systematic desensitization. What is flooding? What does that mean? What does it look like? Right. What What are the limits of classical counter conditioning, and what are the reaches of it? Like though, that's what I mean by um, yeah. understanding learning science and understanding that operant and counter conditioning are holding hands and skipping through all of your all of your things. Like they're both all here all the time. Like that's what I mean by having a background in that there are plenty I do think there are people who are effective who could not hold their own in one of those conversations if yes. you were forcing them to use the jargon but if you just allow them to showcase what they do you will see that they do understand yes if they're effective yes yeah do you remember the the last time you <laughs> used to sit a new puppy class down and teach them the difference between positive reinforcement negative reinforcement negative punishment and positive punishment in the orientation Oh my God, why'd you have to bring that up? <laughs> Such a dogmatic jerk, honestly. Oh. If y'all are doing that, back. cut it, cut they it out. Back. Don't do that. Your clients don't need to hear those words. Nope. Stop it. I that doesn't, that doesn't teach them cringe. what to do. I'm allowing the cringe to be a positive experience because it means that I've grown. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And please learn from us. So you don't find yourself cringing. 
a decade from now. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) I think a knowledge, a baseline knowledge of health and husbandry. Yes. Oh, so much yes. And that is something that at this point in my career, I feel like I'm like I'm only scratching the surface of. Yeah, because the more we know, the more we find out, right? And you, yes. today, and you and I talk about this all the time, we get a lot of cases where the dog is unwell in some way. Yes, yes. And we're not veterinarians, so we are at the mercy of the veterinary team here a lot of the time. And yes. But if you have a client and a veterinary, you know, triangular team between you and the two of them that is like, ready and willing to dig and do the work it's amazing what you find out and then you think back on a case 10 years ago and you go wow is this what was wrong with that dog right right and where experience comes in is recognizing that when a client says oh sometimes he's just really grumpy or it seems like he's in a bad mood that that's actually probably a health related thing that's where experience comes in and then again screw the dichotomy and talk to other people. Like our friend yes. Marissa, the other day, she shares, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, she shares a video with me. She shares a couple of little tidbits and she's like, you know, what's your gut on this? And I was like, well, my gut is like, when was blood work done last? Because this dog doesn't seem right, right. to me. And she was like, thank you for saying it. That's what I thought. And then boom, like go yep. find out that the dog's got X, Y, Z kind of issue. So a baseline knowledge of health and husbandry and husbandry is all just basic dog care. Like it is the care and feeding of, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I will run into dogs that something that's newer for me, that is now something that I try to rule out dogs that are worried about riding in the car, obviously forever. I've treated that like it's a nausea problem until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. The other one that has occurred to me in the last year is orthopedic pain. They don't like to be in the car because it jostles them around. Right. And right. I have, um, I just had a, a trainer on the podcast, Charlotte Hoberg, talk about the dog actually had like bilateral cruciate tears. And until that was diagnosed and addressed, the car issue yeah. was an issue. And once it was addressed, the car issue was no longer. It was. Wow. Over. Right. Right. And, and that, this ooh, is. So screw the dichotomy and talk to other people. Yes. You know, and this is another one where experience makes a difference for me because, like, you have so much experience in the confirmation world that you have learned to look at structure. And now with what you do with agility, dogs need to be physically sound. And so you have such a good eye for spotting potential yeah. structural issues or I gait issues. Yeah. That I have a, I don't have a lot of experience in the confirmation world. Cause I think people will. Oh, okay. I have I thought, little, <laughs> little more bit. than me. <laughs> my experience, my understanding of structure really does come from sports and, but that's not normal. Like not a lot of sport people do that. It's a little bit of an obsession of mine, but yeah, you, right. you can show me a video of a dog gating and go, I don't think this dog looks right. And I'll go, yeah, it doesn't. And I think it's right front right or right. something like that and yeah you know who's wonderful like horse people which you are that's why you can see that dog doesn't look right yeah because when you're watching a like i find that horse people are so good at seeing that stuff because like you're gonna get on its back so if it's off 
Right. <laughs> You're both it. going down. Yeah. But so health and husbandry, really big. And you don't need to be a structure expert if you have a colleague who is. No. And then you chat with them, like screw the dichotomy and talk to people. Yes. Yes. So assessment skills. This is one of those ones that unfortunately I think everybody has to learn like by doing. I wish that there was a better framework for everyone. But yeah. to be effective, you need to know what you're dealing with and therefore you need to be able to assess a situation. And there seems to be, and this has always persisted, this desire to diagnose, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. Yes. That dog is, that's resource guarding. That's, that dog is guarding you its bed. It that name. dog, yeah. Yeah. yes, if we can give it a name then I think it feels like we can go with the right strategy. And, you know, that was one of the big, big shifts for me in my career was when I moved away from, from needing to name the behavior so that I could find the right recipe for it and looking more closely at that functional assessment. Mm -hmm. what, what is motivating the behavior? What is the dog getting mm -hmm. out of that behavior? What's triggering the behavior? You know, what are the the distant and immediate antecedents, right? Those are the pieces well, that inform that entire, our strategies. picture, yeah. Right. As opposed to the dog is barking, I don't like it, so I need to find a way to stop it. Right. Or how many calls do you get where they say, well, the dog's reactive? Yep. And you're, God, there's a lot of things that that could mean. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I've only just started accepting that I could technically call Simon reactive. Right. I refuse to apply that label to any of my dogs. But the thing yeah. is that normal dogs react at stuff sometimes. Right. And when right. they live and... in tough environments for dogs, which your dog does, you live in right. an apartment complex in a city. Right. And you provide a lot for him. And also, that's not an easy environment for a dog to live in. Right. So, of course, he's going to react Person. more often than my dog does because my dog doesn't live there. But if Rhea lived where you lived, let me tell you, Lisa, I'd be using that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it took me a long time to accept it because Simon's lunging and barking is not a distance increasing behavior. It's frustration at not being able to get to the person who made eye contact with him and said, hi, what a cute dog. Right. So if right. you're your client, if Simon's a client dog, your assessment right. skills need to be spot on for you to be able to parse that out. And that yes. is regardless of methodology. Right. Right. And that, I think, segues us nicely into another piece that effective trainers have in common, which is simply hands-on the dog handling and training skills. So it's the application of the rest of the stuff we've just talked about. Yes. The application of, of all of those pieces and handling, handling is not method specific. None of this is not method no, specific, not, but I think the best handling skills I learned at the beginning of my career were again, what, what 
you know, we would have called from a balanced trainer, but handling in terms of keeping myself safe and not just safe from the dog, but safe from injury, from leashes and long lines Mm -hmm. and, you know, anyone who's had, you know, a really good rope burn on the back of their calf from a long line understands what I'm talking about, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and there are some really, really skilled handlers out there and coming from the shelter world, let me tell you. There are some incredibly skilled animal care associates. You know, those are the ones who work and feed the dogs and take the dogs out and clean the kennels. And they are moving dogs around that I would defer to on a regular basis because their handling skills were incredible. They could move those dogs. They could get them, um, get the leash on, get them in and out of kennels with minimal stress. So, Having those good handling skills, I think, is is critical, regardless of the type of dog you're you're working with. Critical. And just just having the the knowledge of theory doesn't give us that. And and I think experience is the piece that we learn that. Yeah, and I do think you learn it by handling dogs and hopefully somebody guiding you. You right. don't learn it from a book. No. You don't learn it at a conference either. You don't and learn you it don't from learn television it just by talking. So, and I don't think it's talked about enough either. And I, you and I have kind of soapboxed about that on your back porch, just talking about. (laughs) Oh yeah. Simply (laughs) and like showing up to the client and they've got this like thick nylon thing that's got three handles on it and a bungee piece in the middle. And we're like, I don't know how, no. Uh, And the, the bone shaped poop bag holder on the handle. That is slapping the dog in the face because it's um, and the leash is too long. And you go to your car and you get your 25-year-old well-worn leather leash that you know uh, is going to be reliable for you and you put it on the dog. Yes. <laughs> well, and this is why we encourage and I encourage clients and I do it myself. I record every single session I do with Simon when I'm teaching him something new mm-hmm. because part of that good handling, it's, it's about recognize, it's about being aware of what we're doing and how our movements and our positions and all of that is influencing the dog's behavior. And so I, you know, I think I was training for like, 10 years before I actually recorded one of my training sessions and man, did I learn a lot and I have become a way better trainer and handler. Yeah. It has changed my life as well. So coaching and consulting skills, another thing that unfortunately is lacking, I think in the education front, but you've got to be able to communicate this stuff to your clients and you've got to be able to teach them in a way that is accessible for them. And that means a variety of things. Yes. But just it means you know, if you catch yourself saying my clients are non-compliant, like that's just a red flag that you can work on this area. Yes. And we all get frustrated and we all have times that, you know, we have clients who you show up for your next lesson and you go, so how did things go this week? And they say, well, I didn't really work on it. And it's frustrating, but it also means that maybe the plan that we gave them is not, is yeah. not practical for them yeah right maybe we gave them too much or maybe they needed a check-in text midway through the week instead of you didn't talk to them for seven days like and it just depends on all of your situations but 
this is one that I think rather than placing blame on your clients, just keep striving, keep striving to be yes. better. We're, we're improve. We can improve on it continually. Right. I've definitely sent a message to a client after a, after a session and said, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I did a very good job of explaining this piece. Let me write it. Let me write it down and let me know if this makes more sense, if there's anything I can do to clarify it. You know, I catch myself. Definitely. Sure. There are times I can do it better. Well, we do. And it's just, it's important to stay humble on that front and to not just immediately blame them for doing it wrong. Nobody's doing right. it wrong on purpose. Just don't forget that. No. Nobody's doing right. it wrong on purpose. Right. Okay. So from there, so that's kind of what everybody who's effective has in common. Yes. But from there, you got style, you've got strat different strategies of intervention. Those things are informed by your personal background, your personal experience, right. and then the individual case and the client. And that has to be okay. Like that all comes together to inform what you're doing, what you're actually doing, which is why talking about our work and showing our work and talking to people is so important because the way that you approach something is probably going to look different than the way that I approach it. And we can both learn from. Yes. Yes. I mean, we, we all have different ways of teaching the same behavior that all fall under the same umbrella of positive reinforcement. But when I watch a video of a trainer doing a behavior, teaching a behavior that I've taught many times and I look at it and their placement of the reinforcer is different than mine, or they start at a different point, or maybe whatever equipment and by equipment, I mean like the, the scratch board for nails mm -hmm. or what they're doing the chin rest on. Like those are all different and those all give me new ideas. So I am not working yeah. from, from one recipe. I have many different ingredients and that's where showing the work is more important than getting be, into debates. Be open <laughs> to forgetting the dichotomy when you're looking at other people's work. Yes. Those I learn so uh, much from everybody that I look at. Of course, of course. And there was someone, oh, I don't know, it was a podcast and someone had a guest on and I looked at the comments, which I shouldn't have done, but it said, <laughs> oh, you, I can't believe you had this person who, you know, they did this research. Yeah, they did that research like back in the 80s. And <laughs> right, it's this, it's these ad hominem fallacies mm -hmm. that I know something about that person. So therefore, everything they have to say is, is invalid. You can't listen to it. Yes. Yeah. Or like, you know, sometimes people will say something like that to me, like, well, I saw this person do this. And I would say, you know what? I hope that nobody holds me to one thing that they saw me do in the last 15 years. Yeah. You know, look at my current body. Yeah. Look, look at what I'm doing today, please. Because I would yes. be different today than I would even do. My training looks so different today than it did like when Felix was a puppy, when I look at the videos. Yeah. So, yeah. And I just think it all kind of comes back to like, if you feel really strongly about this dichotomy, you're missing some information. Yes. Yes. And you, we need to do that self-reflection. Mm. Right. And I'm, I don't think either one of us is saying that there are certain, certain trainers on whether it's YouTube or TV or whatever are, you know, have all have something to teach us. Although maybe they do. 
I mean, there's a certain TV trainer that certainly got a lot of buy-in from people. Yeah. You know, there was something about his presentation and, yep, his presentation and communication skills that we probably could have learned from. That comes back to, like, though, there are people who are just straight up doing a bad job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that they're really obvious. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It is obvious. It is obvious. Right. Right. But I agree. If we if we have when we have taken that dogmatic approach Mm. like you and I have, we were missing a lot of information. And maybe that information we gained from experience. Right. Like, oh, wow. Well, what my belief was in terms of how to address this, this dog, you know, this wolf dog has just taught me something very different about what I believed. Oh, yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And. And that's one that's why we're posing these questions as opposed to saying this is what we think about these different sides of the argument. Right. We are saying ask these questions. It's, you know, our friend Marissa says all the time, get curious. (laughs) She does. And it's true. Like, especially get curious about yourself if you feel so strongly about this dichotomy. Where's that coming from? Right. And I think, you know, if if we see someone say, well, all force-free, you know, force-free trainers just want to do this, instead of saying, no, they don't, and here's five articles that prove you wrong, what if we, you know, what if we asked? what, What from your experience led you to believe this? Yeah. Because... They may have one force-free trainer in their town, and maybe that's a brand new trainer who, who still you know has some knowledge. But great job, yeah, yeah. And if that's where that comes from, the, and same for us with balanced trainers. Who my ex, my exposure to some trainers who called themselves balanced where I used to live. If that was all I knew, I would probably still be that dogmatic. Yeah. Right. And so I think it, it comes down to if you choose not to use certain tools because of your personal beliefs or ethics, that is all well and good and fantastic. But that should be your argument. But the argument that comes in instead is that XYZ thing that I choose not to use will cause harm or does not work. Right. Like it's not effective or it causes problems in the dog's behavior. Versus right. just saying it is an ethical thing for me that I don't use these things on dogs or it's an ethical thing for me that I help this client achieve their goals no matter what, right? Like I right. will use whatever tools necessary. That's my ethics. And then over here, I will not use whatever tools necessary. That's my ethics, right? So like if it's an right. ethical thing, cool, but stick to that being your argument rather than, well, that doesn't work. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.